0: And Welcome to another edition of Resistance TV. With the world teetering on the brink of global conflict, the need for the anti war and anti imperialist movements around the world to unite has never been greater. So I'm really pleased that we're going to welcome Jyoti Bra as our guest this evening. She's just returned, or recently returned anyway, from a conference in Venezuela to look at how ordinary people around the world can organize to push back against the imperialist warmongers. Jyoti is a socialist and an anti imperialist activist. And so relatively recently, she was the deputy leader of the Workers' Party, and uh, I believe that Jyoti is the spokesperson for the uh, the platform movement that is trying to pull the anti-imperialist and anti-war movements together, and that's what this conference in Venezuela was all about. So uh, welcome to the show, Joti. Good to see you again.
1: Thanks, Chris. Nice to be with you.
0: Great. I think it's... God, it's about 18 months. It's been a couple of years since you were last on uh, Resistance TV. It was a long time ago anyway, but uh, it's good to see you. is. <laughs> we're all getting older, mate, yeah. Listen, um, just to start off, really, because I, I guess not everybody will be familiar with this uh, movement that is trying to pull the anti-imperialist and anti-war movements together. And as I was saying in the introduction there, you've just returned from Venezuela. So just give us a flavour, really, about this movement um how it come to be and, and then perhaps we could just talk about what was discussed at the conference in venezuela
1: sure well so the platform the world anti-imperialist platform it's called but we sort of call it the platform for short uh yeah. was founded back in last october in paris and it really came out of uh, an anti-war or a conference about the war in ukraine which was held a few months before that in the late spring, early summer of um, last year, and which revealed uh, something that some of us have been aware of for a while, but very, very clearly that there's a big split amongst people who call themselves socialist, communist, anti-imperialist in their understanding of the war. And that seemed to stem from a really deep divide over how we define imperialism. And if you all have noticed, this, I'm sure you have noticed that imperialism has become a term that's moved from being something that just the left, uh, the communists, the socialists, the anti-imperialists talk about, to being something that the imperialists talk about. Increasingly, uh, over the last couple of years, we see you know uh, long articles in places like Foreign Policy magazine and various think tanks, uh, you know, in the USA and Britain, talking about imperialism and characterizing the countries they want to attack as imperialist, And there's yeah. been a big problem has been created in our own movement, in the anti-war movement, in the working class movement, because this idea of Russian and Chinese imperialism, which was created by the imperialists themselves, has kind of spread and become a kind of a poison in our ranks. And what it means is there's a, there's a, there's a great confusion now amongst, amongst workers about Whose side are they supposed to be on? I hate imperialism, but who's the imperialist I'm supposed to be against? So really, the 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 World Anti Imperialist Platform was formed by those people who had a very clear understanding that yes, one side in the in the world at the moment is an is an imperialist camp. It's made up of the NATO countries. It's Russia. Uh, sorry, it's it's USA followed by Britain, Germany, France. You know the EU, uh, Japan. You know they're in the imperialist bloc. They're aggressive. They are uh, making, starting wars, driving us towards a third world war to save their system, which is in crisis. And then on the other side, we see coalescing a block of countries that's growing all the time, who are imposing this drive to war, opposing this drive for hegemony, opposing the profiteering and the domination of the imperialist countries. And they are independent, some of them are socialists, some of them are just national, bourgeois, independent countries, uh, but they are anti-imperialist as a block we characterize. And this, this understanding is really necessary for workers uh, because without it, we don't know what our job is in the anti-war movement, do we? Um, so the platform came together in order to give this clear understanding and to try therefore to bring people together in united action on the side of the anti-imperialist camp. Because what we've also understood is that if the imperialists get their way and win their wars, the wars they're desperate to have against Russia, against the the North Korea, against Iran, against Venezuela, against China. If they win these wars, which is they're turning it into one big war, Chris, it's, you know, we're heading for global conflagration, the way they're yeah. accelerating this war drive, if they win... It's a catastrophe for humanity that, you know, we're going to have 20, 30, 40, you know, more years of this profiteering, domineering, you know, pushing workers into the mud while the rich get fewer and richer. Um, and they and they continue to loot the planet for the benefit of a tiny handful of, of super rich.
0: Mm. I mean, what I found a bit disappointing, uh, Jyoti, is uh, some of the trade union leadership support for... This proxy war in Ukraine, and uh, you know, talking about the importance of continuing to supply weapons to Ukraine Nazis. Let's be honest about it. It's certainly, very influential the Nazis in in Ukraine. I mean, I, what, what, as far as the platform uh, uh, movement that you are a spokesperson for. I mean, have you had any discussions with trade union leaders around the world? Is, is the plans to do so? Is there any support from? for many uh, leading trade unionists uh, around the world for this movement, which is so crucially important to the, the you know, we're facing an existential threat, aren't we, really, from, from, from war? Because, you know, a, a global conflagration could escalate into nuclear annihilation. Um, what, what's your take on, the, 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 you know, where the trade some of the trade unions anyway, are at and, and, and what think the scope is to, to get the trade union leaders on side?
1: It's a really good question, Chris, because, of course, the the power of workers organized in trade unions, their ability actually to scupper the war plans of the imperialists is immense. That is a huge power that right now is latent. Nowhere in the imperialist world is there a, a trade union movement that's prepared to harness the power of its members to sabotage, disrupt, stop the war machine, which they could do. We, you know, let's be in no doubt about it, that should be our demand to our unions. We refuse to cooperate with these these wars, but the only way to refuse our cooperation is collectively. And that means we need to do it through the unions with mass actions, you know, refuse to move the materials, refuse to broadcast the war propaganda, you know, all the jobs that are needed to make the war happen are done by workers, you know, and the trade union movement could and should be having a huge impact on that. So. On our list of demands is absolutely that, that um, this should be our call in every country. We should be mobilizing actively through the unions, through civil society, through every type of organization, these these active campaigns of non-cooperation with the war effort, anywhere where there are NATO bases and NATO war effort is happening, which let's face it, is nearly everywhere. Um, But you're right, in the imperialist countries, we see the exact opposite these type of um, demands uh, fall on totally deaf ears. Our trade union leaders, on the, in quite the reverse, are determined to show their loyalty to British imperialism no matter what. Mm. The only action we've seen in Britain to try to sabotage any war effort uh, or to throw their weight behind any action in this war has been trade unions asking their members not to cooperate with putting oil on Russian ships, the yeah. exact opposite of what they should be doing, which yeah. is refusing to op- cooperate with the British war machine. But mm-hmm. they've been very happy to repeat the imperialist propaganda about Russian imperialism, which again is yes. one of the reasons for the for the platform existing. And when it comes to trade unions in other countries, we don't have a kind of trade union platform as yet within the platform what we do have is um many organizations who are participating in our conferences and who have signed the paris declaration which was our kind of launching document back in october last year um, who have connections some of them very big connections to large trade union movements and you know they will be using their influence in their countries to mobilize around this program point. So for example, you know, you said that we had our conference in Caracas recently. Well, that was because the PSUV, the ruling party of Venezuela, has signed the Paris Declaration. And yes. so they co-hosted with us our, our conference in Caracas, which was the third conference of the platform. We got the fourth one come up, coming up in Seoul. And again, the, the um, party that's co-hosting that with us is the People's Democracy Party, of, uh, South Korea, they have big connections with the trade union movement there, they will be mobilizing in the trade unions around these demands. So yes we do need to popularize that demand you know yeah. as far as possible.
0: I mean I think the trade unions have been missing a trick for many many years on a whole host of things in terms of raising political consciousness but this is probably the most important issue to raise consciousness about and yet as we saw at the TUC last year a former previous policy of the TUC to support defence diversification was was overturned. Even Unite support. I mean, obviously Unite's you know, got a lot of members working in the arms sector, but as we know, the number of people working in what well, they call it defence, but you know, I prefer to call it kind of the arms industry or the offensive industry. The number of people working in that as 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 uh, uh, Massively reduced over the last thirty or forty years. I was looking at some stats. We've mentioned this on Mississippi TV before that suggested in 1981, I think it was something like 460,000 people were working in so-called defence sector, and it's down. And this was a couple of years ago, a couple of three years ago now, actually, down to uh, around about 140,000, 150,000. So, the, I mean, you know, there's a need for defensification, irrespective of your, you know, position in in relation to, you know, whether it's Right, moral, or whatever, to invest in, uh, you know, arms uh, manufacturing, um, because it's clearly not the it's clearly not the uh, secure industry that that you know some of the trade union leaders seem to have us or want to have us believe. Um, so, you know, what do you think we should be doing then? I mean, you know, for people watching this discussion that we're having. Joe i mean what what i mean what can trade unionists do grassroots trade unions do to you know try and push this agenda assuming they they support what we are saying and what you're saying
1: one second i'm gonna turn the light on
0: <laughs> it's okay.
1: just realized i just realized it's getting dark isn't it
0: um it is we could see it quite well though your camera's very good <laughs> but anyway yeah
1: i felt like I was starting to stand in the dark so ah, no no you were asking about trade unions. So, well, it's interesting, isn't it, this f- sort of fetishization of, oh, well, the defence industry provides jobs, therefore we must promote the fact that there are jobs and save the jobs. And we're, you know, trade union's job is to save jobs. But, of course, you know, yes, trade union are there to reflect, you know, uh, look after the interests of their members, but our me- members have wide interests. It, uh, it's not in our members' interest to be driven into World War Three. you know. So... No, of course. Um, you know, trade unions are perfectly capable of having a wider view than just this job here is really important to be saved. What should we be demanding? Jobs for everybody, useful jobs for everybody. It's not like there's nothing that needs doing, Chris, is it? No, you know, no, so no. this sort of, this this kind of siloed, narrow approach where we just look right in front of us and say, well, this is my job and this job has to be saved doesn't make any sense you know jobs come and go all the time as society changes and develops and that's natural uh that some jobs will become obsolete and some other jobs in other sectors will will come up and develop because society is developing and technology is developing all the time so there's nothing wrong with saying jobs here are becoming obsolete. And instead, we need jobs somewhere else. But there's a kind of narrow view that's taken that we can't look at the economy as a whole, we must only look in, you know, this job here and this place here, and my job is to defend it no matter what. So, you know, that that's the kind of bigger picture of, you know, do we have to defend a job just, you know, even if it's a kind of useless job, or there's a wider question of, you know, the arms that we're producing? Well, look, you know, I can't say I'm against all weapons technology in the world we live in. Um, I'm in favor since the imperialists have these horrific weapons, I'm in favor that as many other countries as possible should have them so they can defend themselves, because it's the imperialists who use them aggressively. And they use them precisely when when the countries they're targeting can't defend themselves. You know, that's, that's how imperialism works they back up their economic might with military might and with technical domination technological domination they have a technological advantage and they use that to enforce their will on everybody everywhere so my view is if there are if there are weapons in the world and if we have imperialists in the world everybody needs weapons to defend themselves with and you only have to look at the difference between libya and north korea to see how you know, a strong army that's able to defend a country can keep the peace. That's a sad fact of the world we live in. Would I like to see unilateral disarmament of everybody? Of course, yes, but you have to, unfortunately we have to start with the imperialists. And to be honest with you, the only way we're gonna get that is just to to defeat imperialism and destroy it. They're not gonna sit down and negotiate their surrender. You know, you only have to look at the treaties they made with the Soviet Union. They made treaties to reduce numbers of missiles at a time when they were trying to woo a Soviet Union that was declining and on the path towards uh, the coup and the collapse that came later. They didn't really mean it. As soon as the Soviet Union was gone, they were busy rearming themselves. You know, we were told that without the Soviet Union, there'd be no need for all these weapons and there'd be a peace dividend.
0: Peace what dividend happened? indeed.
1: What yeah, happened yeah. after the Soviet Union collapsed? They had an orgy of looting the resources of the former Soviet Union, followed by an orgy of wars around the world to try to crush all dissent. They thought they had an opportunity of no one to stop them, and they took it. Um, And that's one of the things the platform's really aware of, you know, the fact that this orgy of looting that gave a shot in the arm to a system that was in crisis back in the 1980s is exactly what the imperialists are trying to get get to again. They want an orgy of looting of the resources of Russia and the resources of China. They want to break it up. Do you ever hear them talking about decolonization? It's amazing how they've moved the terminology of Marx into the imperialist narrative. Mm -hmm. And now they talk about Russian imperialism and decolonizing Russia. And what they mean is breaking it into pieces so we can control it and loot it. Mm
0: -hmm. Do say a bit more and because you mentioned in, in your opening remarks, Jyoti, about how they're trying to flip this notion of imperialism to accuse Russia and certainly China of being imperialist. and yet China surrounded by you know NATO bases Russia similarly, just say a bit about you know the reality of the situation that Russia's confronting and what China is confronting and maybe also say a little bit about their foreign policy um, activities as opposed to, you know, the West's foreign policy and the way they conduct themselves. to so the kind of gunboat diplomacy that, that we've seen over the last couple of centuries or so. But, you know, just the reality of the situation, first of all, for, for China face, face, facing China and, and, and Russia and then say a little bit about that, you know, how they go about their foreign policy.
1: Sure. Well, you know, um, this using of the word imperialism against Russia, against China, against essentially any country that's quite big (laughs) and has a developing economy, um, there's no economic data to justify this characterization. You know, these are countries that don't live by super exploiting or looting the world, they don't put other countries into military, into technological, or into debt slavery. Um, It's the opposite, in fact, you know, China is famous for conducting its trade uh, in very beneficial terms to the countries it's trading with, no matter how big or small that country's economy may be. They transfer technology. You know, the Russians offer military assistance to help countries which are finding it hard to break free of imperialist control and looting to become independent and start to develop their own economies in their own interests without this constant looting and bullying of the imperialists. So they're actually Russia and China between them with with technological uh, assistance, with trade assistance, with military assistance, they're actually offering a space for smaller developing countries to start to break out of this imperialist enslavement trap that they've been in for so long. Um, And You know, Russia and China really have made themselves the targets for the imperialists, not by anything they've done in terms of, you know, they're they're not aggressing anybody, they're not, they, they don't put their bases around us, as you pointed out, Chris, it's quite the opposite. It's simply that they retain their independence, and they're assisting other nations to gain theirs. And so... But, you know, even if they weren't helping anybody, even if they were just saying, no, I have the right to remain independent, the fact that they're doing that on a big territory with a lot of resources, that is an absolute anathema to imperialism and a particularly imperialism right now, which is suffering a deep economic crisis, is desperate for sources of profit. Now we see that at home. They're privatising everything in sight, right? The, the Treasury is constantly printing money to subsidise this industry and that industry, the arms industry, the energy industry, you know, the subsidy after subsidy, subsidies to bail out the stock market, to bail out the failing banks, you know. Um, they're desperate for sources of profit. And any country... That doesn't allow looting on the imperialist terms where they get super profits, maximum profit, is an impediment to their ability to get profits and their systems in crisis. They can't, they just can't allow it, you know? So, Russia and China, it's not what kind of government they have, it's not what kind of social system they have, it's not anything they've done or not done, it's just existing. In an independent way, which makes them the target of the imperialists. And the interesting thing is that they've started to realize it. Well, they have realized it, finally realized it. You know, for a long time, Russia and China both they could see that the West was kind of edging towards them and, and trying to surround them and, and becoming more and more bellicose and aggressive. And they tried to show: look, we're no threat to you. We'll be your partners in the world. We will, but but they expected in return to be treated as equals, as partners, you know, as as, um, as independent entities. And of course, the imperialists can't have that. And no amount of um, pacification on the part of China or Russia would make the imperialists let them alone. And they finally realized that that's the case. And what's really interesting is the way that the imperialists plan to Break them apart and loot them, you know. Break them into pieces and use use breaking Russia as a springboard to then breaking China. They've achieved. Mm. They're achieving the opposite. They're achieving the unity of Russia and China. Just the thing that they really didn't want to oh, yeah. happen. They've made but, it happen. That,
0: absolutely. I mean, they're not not just Russia and China, but 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 you know, but other countries like Iran and. And, uh, and obviously Venezuela that you mentioned, you know, the Latin American countries, et cetera, you know, are, are, you know, coming together. And indeed, you know, China's role on the international stage now in terms of its diplomatic role, you know, bringing that rapprochement more between Iran and Saudi Arabia was was quite an achievement, wasn't it, really? And, you know, we're used to seeing on our television screens, but, oh, you know, U.S. states people going around the world and, you know, brokering uh, deals, as it were, and, they seem to be kind of, you know, definitely being pushed to the, the sidelines, which I think can only be a good thing, that we move away from this unipolar world to a multipolar world. But just in going back to, to a little, if I can, just get your thoughts, Jyoti, in relation to this notion of imperialism. One of the things that, of course, people are... are I know mean, not just the kind of, you know, the imperialists in the upper echelons, you know, writing these things, you know, the Atlantic Council and all that lot, but, but, you know, ordinary, regular people... Well, I think I'd be sucked in by the propaganda if I, without wanting to sound patronising. But I mean, one of the ways in which they are making the case or arguing the case that you know, Russia is an imperialist power is the war in Ukraine. Just give us your take on that. I don't know if Platform have, have got a you know a view about that, but um going to be interesting your thoughts on, on it, first of all, and, and indeed whether there is a, an official position in relation to the situation that's happening in Ukraine at the moment.
1: Yes, well, I speak both for myself and for the platform when I say that, you know, we absolutely take the view that this war did not start a year ago. You know, it was not Russia that threatened Ukraine's sovereignty. It was the USA which destroyed what was left of Ukraine's sovereignty, which, let's face it, even by 2014 was not much, because 2014 was not the first coup that the United States had made in the Ukraine. The first coup that the United States made in Ukraine was in 2004. And in fact, the first time that the USA sponsored fascists to fight the local people in Ukraine was 1945 to 1953. They haven't stopped sponsoring Ukrainian fascists who were allied to Hitler during World War II since World War II ended. Ukraine was always their, their primary means of trying to mobilize people against the USSR, the, 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 the ultra-nationalists who, who, who were traditionally based in the uh, western part of what was the Soviet Republic of Ukraine. Um, that, that was the kind of stronghold of ultra, ultra-nationalism, Nazism, fascism in Ukraine, which had always been fostered by outside forces you know, it, it began as a force, as an anti-Soviet force in the very early days of the revolution, and it was used by the British. Then it was taken over by the Germans uh, during, the, during the 30s and the Second World War, Stepan Bandera, who's hailed as the national hero of, of the, the Ukrainian fascist government today, um, was a Nazi, an actual Nazi who carried out, you know, a part of the Holocaust on behalf of the Third Reich, against Jews, against Poles, you know, horrendous crimes committed against the Ukrainian people or the the people of the Ukrainian Soviet Republic by these fascists during World War II, you know, you could go on and on. But in 2014, that Maidan coup that we all remember, that, you know, the the Euro Maidan, and it was glamorized all over our media as this great pro-democracy protest, was A fascist coup sponsored by the USA and the European Union, but particularly by the USA. And the Ukraine ever since has been a a fiefdom of the CIA, essentially. It hasn't had any sovereignty. It has had puppet governments. It has had comprador uh, rulers. And essentially it's it's been directed from the White House and the Pentagon and the CIA offices in Virginia, Langley, and or Langley, Virginia, sorry. And yeah. um, you know, the idea that this decontextualized narrative that we get in uh, our media, it's it's classic. You know, you know because you look at Palestine all the time, how for 70 years we've had a narrative in the West about Palestine which takes away all context. Like there's no history. Every every event that happens is presented as if it just came out of the blue. Well, this thing happened. Oh, violence is not very nice, is it? You know, um, of course, violence is not very nice, but that doesn't tell you anything about where the violence came from, who's responsible for it. You know, what's it in re- what's it in response to? What's the history? Who are the forces on each side? What are they trying to achieve? You know, all of that. the The fact is that Ukraine has been turned into a CIA playground. Uh, awash with Nazi armed bandits, so that it can be used as a battering ram against Russia. Hmm. And the first thing they did was turn on the Russian people who lived inside the borders of what was the Soviet Republic of Ukraine, which was a multinational state. It wasn't an ethnic Ukrainian state in the nationalist sense. People called themselves Ukrainian because they lived in the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. But half yeah. of that used to be in Russia, yeah. you know, they were Russian people. There's, there's no historical basis for saying these people are Ukrainian in an ethnic or national sense. Um, That was fine. They didn't need to be you know, under socialism, it doesn't people can live together no matter what their nationality perfectly happily. And they did. And there was, you know, there was no problem between these brother peoples, as, as, you know, the Russians continue to say, we are brother peoples, Ukrainians and Russians, there's no difference between us. This is being whipped up by outside forces against our interests, and we don't want it. But it got to a point in 2022, where they were forced, the Russians had been so patient. For eight years, they watched their compatriots being bombed, shelled in the Donbass, you know, the, the regions of Ukraine which had refused to go along with the fascist coup and had risen up in resistance. They had referenda to say they wanted autonomy. They had armed themselves to defend themselves against these fascists and the Ukrainian army, which is essentially a NATO army, but also riddled with fascists, you know. They had risen up to defend themselves against these people who were conducting ethnic pog- pogroms against them, who would, you know, t- saying that Russians are second-class citizens and, and you know, shouldn't mm-hmm. be allowed to do this, that, and the other. And they were trying to create this kind of two-tier ethnic apartheid within, you know, the, the boundaries of what had been Soviet Ukraine. And the people who resisted them, they shelled and bombed them for eight years. You know, 14,000 yeah. people died. Nothing in our media, nothing at all.
0: And didn't Zelensky say, actually, that Israel would be a good model for Ukraine? And just picking up on that, you know, two-tier kind of societal scenario, you know, with the second-class citizens in um, Palestine, you know, the, the way in which the Palestinians are treated, you know, in apartheid, by apartheid Israel, you know, you've got the president of Ukraine saying, you know, that, that's the great model, and I suspect that's the sort of thing that that he's got thinking, but just perhaps in conclusion, uh, Joe, because we've been going for uh, half an hour now already, really, and I, you know we could talk for a lot longer, of course. I just wanted to—I mean, you, you mentioned um, about the technological advantage that uh, the West has had over uh, other other um, nations around the the world, um, but that technological advantage, I think, has, has diminished and maybe even is being uh, superseded now by China. Do you not think? And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that and also, you know, the response to that, this kind of AUKUS deal. And I don't know if you've if you've paid much attention to, you know, the Australian position and where the platform is, you know, because they're basically, you know, a poodle of, of the United States. And they, and they, you know, I think the vast bulk of their trade is with China. And yet the politicians, I mean, the politicians are at a touch across the West, clearly in this country, but it seems it's just as bad in Australia. You know, talking about this sort of yellow peril, the, you know, the uh, impending uh, um, combination uh, and, and potentially even in, uh, military intervention by China against Australia, it's absolutely bloody ridiculous. But, uh, you know, these these are the politicians that are, are making this case. And of course, now Australia's, you know, signed up to this uh, ridiculous orchestra. So when they could say a little bit about, about the technological advances that China's made and how they seem to be in my opinion, anyway, seemingly kind of superseding, certainly matching, and in some areas maybe even superseding uh, the West, and and you know and 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 get your thoughts really about that and the this you know this Orca deal, which it seems to me to be a, you know kind of response to to that.
1: Yeah, it's a very good question, Chris. You know, ever since the October Revolution and the beginning of the the socialist world, the socialist era, if you like, opened in the in the in the world. There's been an understanding that. The key thing for socialism to do in order to succeed is to um, advance technologically and break the technological monopoly of the imperialists. You know, so far, we haven't yet lived in a world where socialism is dominant, even where socialism was growing and on the up, imperialism was still bigger than socialism uh, for the time being. And the ability of the imperialists to keep being imperialists really rests on their technological dominance, as we were talking about earlier. So just as the Soviets shocked the USA by putting the first man into space, a satellite, the first man, the USA went, we didn't think they could do that. You know, They'd been resting on their laurels and suddenly they were throwing resources into R&D and they were like, we can't let this happen because the imperialists understand too that their ability to dominate the globe rests on having the best technology. Just like in the early days of the colonizers, you know, they, they were societies that in some ways were far advanced of us in, in the kinds of things that they were able to do. But socially, they weren't as uh, as far advanced in terms of, you know, we had we had bourgeois economies uh, and, and that type of organization as opposed to feudal or, or other types. But we had this technology of guns. <laughs> These yeah. met- weapons that we could bring to bear were overwhelming in terms of their technological dominance and it made the Europeans seem invincible you know and so for a period you know Europe could just go around the globe saying oh, I'll have that I'll have that I'll have that because I've got these guns and you can't do anything about it well this is what imperialism has always rested on chris and you know the the more loot it attracts to itself the more it works to maintain that dominance and it, of course the, the highest level of R&D goes into the armaments industry. You know the most advanced technology is always in the weapons because it's the weapons that back up the finance that back up the ability to stay on top. And um so you know just as the Soviets realised that the Chinese realised that you know and they've been quietly slowly but surely building up their technological abilities and they some time ago they identified Key areas of research and development that they needed to get on top of and have an independent ability in. It's no good to buy your technology from the imperialists. And they've always got you, you know, they've got yeah. one over on you. They've got you under the thumb. So the Chinese realized very clearly, you know, they've been working very hard to educate, you know, STEM graduates. They've got so many more uh, graduates in. Uh, what does what does the STEM stand for? Technology, engineering, science,
0: engineering, mathematics. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, They're producing so many more of those high level STEM graduates than anywhere else in the world. They have put huge resources into R&D precisely so that they can become independent of uh, U.S. controlled technologies. Because if the U.S. controls your technology, they can control your economy. And if they can control your economy, they can control everything else about your life, you know, and loot you and have you where they want you. Um, And they can threaten you you know, with their weapons. So to be able to have parity and, in fact, to to go ahead and, and have real independence where you can't be bullied that's really been really important for China. And they have a program called Made in China 2025, which really aim to become fully independent of all these serious technologies from the US by the end of 2025. And they're well on the way to achieving it, which is exactly why you see in all these foreign policy journals and think tanks in the USA, they're setting 2025 as their deadline to take down China. It's before they know that they've got to have their war to destroy China Before that, Mm -hmm. that's what they're really that, you know, that's what they're very, very focused on. You know, on the one hand, they want to do the loot, need the looting because their system's in crisis. All their banks are busy falling at the moment and they're trying to pretend it's not happening. You know, and they're printing more money to bail them out, which is going to create more inflation. You know, they're in they're stuck in this downward spiral and they're desperate to get out. They're desperate to destroy Russia, desperate to destroy China. But they're equally desperate that the if they don't do it soon. It will be impossible to even think about doing it.
0: Mm. I mean, and of course, when smaller nations uh, seek to their own, you know, direction of travel and their only, you know, their kind of sort of independence, as it were, from the from the imperialists. Uh, I'm thinking of places like Libya. You know, with the, with the proposals that they. Um, we're coming forward with, you know, possibly for the Pan-African currencies, I understand it, you know, and the kind of oil reserves that they were going to use to kind of back that. I mean, I mean, we, what we know what happened. Um, China's a different prospect though, of course, and, uh, you know, a much bigger uh, um, entity and, uh, you know, much more formidable um, uh, uh, adversary in that sense. So it'll be, well, it's an interesting time, certainly in which we live. Um, I mean, just on that AUKUS point though, I mean, I don't know if platform has, has taken a position in relation to, you know, kind of nuclear subs and you know, what, what this kind of nuclear technology that Australia is kind of getting in, in, in bed with in relation to the so-called Chinese threat. I mean, it's yeah. the, any thoughts I
1: mean, on that? In- China really doesn't present a threat to anybody. But, you know, of course, in order to drum up support for its aggressive wars, the Imperials the have to create a narrative, don't they? So the narrative is China's coming to get you, China's aggressive. You know, it's like pure projection, actually. The things they accuse Russia and China of are the things they do themselves. Right? China China wants to do this to you. China's coming to get you. China's aggressing. China's, you know, it's all fabrication. um, But they drum up this kind of hysteria. In order to soften the population up for war and to get them into a state where they will accept these things which are which are crazy provocations and moves towards war i mean putting a bunch of nuclear submarines in australia is basically saying australia is nato's base near to china you know in this part of the pacific well thank you you just made the people of australia a prime target for China if ever the nuclear war breaks out, which, you know, if it yeah. does, it will be the USA that provokes it. But, you know, yeah. anyone who allows the USA to put their weapons on their soil is is saying, yes, we're okay with being the target. You know, yeah. and then um, that's what's being done to the Australian people. It's absolutely not in their interests. I'm sure Australia, you know, like Europe, would quite like to have some of the infrastructure and and technology transfer that China offers to its, you know, trading partners yeah. elsewhere in the globe. You know, you were talking about that. Um, you know, why why is it that our rulers, you know, sort of allow themselves to be what seems like just poodles for the USA? But clearly, in Australia, in Germany, in Britain. There are some super rich who see that the way for them to keep on top and keep being super rich is to stay in alliance with the USA, which has, let's remember, the big military, the big military yeah. machine, which none of the others have anymore. They don't have the power to go it alone, so they stick with their alliance, and they don't mind if the masses in their own countries suffer as a result. They, they prepare to throw them all into the grinder, as long as they can stay on top and keep their right to to loot the planet, and they and they see their alliance with the USA as the best way of doing that, as far as I can see.
0: Well, it's a thanks for that, Joe. Uh, it's been a really fascinating uh, discussion. Uh, we've gone for forty minutes thereabouts, um, and it's just flown by. It's really interesting, and we perhaps need to return to this. And obviously, platforms growing. We've got you've got another conference you were saying coming up in in Seoul. Um, so that'll be interesting. Maybe we'll get you back after after that uh, event uh, and see how things have, have developed. But just in the meantime, Jyoti, could you perhaps give a, a link or a, or a social media handle where people can find out more information about platform and, and also where people can follow your work?
1: Yeah, for sure. Thank you. So the platform has a website, which is WAP, W-A-P 21.org. Uh, we also just launched a news website called uh, Platform News, WAPnews.org, wapnews.org. It has a Telegram channel, uh, Platform News, and I have a Telegram channel, Jyoti Bra, and that, uh, my party also, The Communists, so uh, I personally, uh, I like Telegram as a form of social media. I find it a lot yeah. less distracting than all the other ones. You can just go to what you want. We don't do any spam. There's one or two updates a day, but it's pretty useful analysis. So that's where I like people to find me.
0: Great. And and your speech, I believe, is available that you made at the... Uh conference in venezuela uh, online isn't it so if people are interested yeah. in what you had to say they can go and find that probably on your telegram channel i think can they yeah, yeah yeah great well listen thanks very much indeed then joe bra for coming on this evening and uh, thank everybody for watching that's it for this evening we'll see you next week at seven o'clock on resistance tv so until then this is me saying goodbye good night <laughs>